Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning, if you will, of a new church year. Like many of you, I'm sure, it's a time that I love, it's a time of year that I deeply cherish, and almost every year at Advent, I take a couple minutes to point out something that might appear strange, but is in fact profound and important. You may have even noticed it this morning. If you look at the historic readings, scripture readings, used by the church throughout the world and down through the centuries, if you look at those readings for Advent, you'll notice that a lot of them are not about Christmas. But rather they are about the second coming. The second Advent. Advent, as we heard means coming. It's a strange thing. Now, there are two reasons for this. First, it reminds us that Christmas, right, Christmas which we rightly celebrate and enjoy, which we delight in, Christmas is something which, strictly speaking, is past. It has already occurred. We are not waiting for it. The Word has become flesh. He is forever incarnate, of course, and the light of that glory abides with us forever. But the events of the Christmas story, those are things we commemorate. We remember them with joy. But we live on the other side of those events. So we speak... We speak of looking forward to Christmas during the Advent season. But we mean, of course, that we are looking forward to commemorating the Incarnation. We're looking forward to looking back. We look forward to looking back on the event where God becomes man. It's important to keep that in mind. The second reason the church is reading show a profound wisdom, is this. The first advent cannot be separated from the second advent. They're joined together. We live after the first, and thus as those who yearn for the second. So that to to merely think incarnation is to think of the inbreaking of the glory of God into the world. Right? And to think of the inbreaking of God's glory into this world is inevitably to be drawn to contemplate and to desire its fullness, its completion in the advent or coming of that same Christ at the end of the age. It's a natural movement. Even though for us, It appears like we're dealing with two separate events, you know, the first coming, and then a linear long period of time, and then the second coming. Surely that's how things are. Well, it turns out that is not, in fact, the way the New Testament views the matter. Because the first coming already brings the kingdom that will come in fullness at the second coming. And thus the end of all things breaks into time in Jesus Christ. 
This is very hard to grasp, I know, because it messes with our basic sense of time and its order. But I want to suggest this morning that it's basic to the New Testament, and thus it's basic to to Christian existence. There's an example I often use to try and get this point across. And, And it's, if you were ordering pizza on Tuesday, and then you're ordering a bigger, better pizza again on Friday... You have, you have two separate events with some linear time between them. Tuesday's pizza is one thing. Friday's pizza is another thing. It's an even greater, better pizza. The advent of Christ is not like that. It's like a situation, to continue the metaphor reverently here, it's like a situation where Tuesday's pizza is Friday's pizza in advance. And that's not like anything you normally experience. That's what we're dealing with here. Tuesday's pizza is Friday's pizza in a different mode. You don't have two distinct pizzas. You have one pizza in two phases. In the same way, the coming of the kingdom of God is not two discrete things. It's one action, one messianic action of glory breaking in and transfiguring the cosmos in two phases. You can see this all throughout the New Testament, that one of the chief places to see it is in Jesus' resurrection. We are told by the writers of the New Testament that Christ's resurrection is the beginning or the first fruits of the harvest at the end of the age. So the the general resurrection of the dead, which we wait for, we confess in the creed, right? We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That end of the age harvest, it is already underway because Jesus is the first fruits and he's been raised. This is an astonishing thing. The first advent in Christ has set the second advent in motion. And thus we stand as people under that end at all times. You saw it in the actual call to worship today, which is from Romans 14, which is, by the way, another historic advent reading text. A text which says of us that we live in the era where the night is far gone and the day is at hand. The day of Christ's appearing It is at hand for us. So what's the continual language of the New Testament then? It's this. The end of all things is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. The Lord is near. The watching, waiting, praying, looking language all assumes that it doesn't matter if there are 57 billion linear years between Jesus' first and second coming in our experience. Theologically, the second coming has always already began. And you always stand under it. It doesn't matter if it happens tonight. It doesn't matter if it happens a hundred trillion years from now. Tuesday's pizza is Friday's pizza in advance. The first advent places a person underneath, at the beginning, on the cusp of the second advent. And this is why at Advent, we remember... And we rejoice in the incarnation. 
But then naturally, you know, or, organically, instinctively, the church yearns for the fullness of the complete advent of Christ in his second appearing. And it's that very deep intuition, that wisdom, is the reason why you get the kinds of readings in Advent that you have gotten in the church. One of those readings is the assigned New Testament lesson today for the first Sunday in Advent, the text from 1 Corinthians 1, which we will look at under two headings. Gratitude and glory, the the outline is on the back inside page of your bulletin. So gratitude and glory. It's interesting, right? I'm I'm guessing that the vast majority of us have never read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9 and said, Ah, that's a Christmas text. But the whole historic church has, beloved. right? Not three or four people. The whole historic church reads this text at Advent. They read Romans 14 at Advent and a number of other texts. So let me start by reminding us about this people, this Corinthian church. It has serious divisions. It has cliques. It has personality cults. It has great disorder at the Lord's Supper. It is tolerating, not only tolerating, it's tolerating with a certain sort of superiority a form of incest. They are taking each other to court. They are visiting prostitutes. They are attending feasts in the pagan temples. And in the midst of this, they're puffed up with this incredible hubris and pride, especially in their use of spiritual gifts. They're hostile to Paul and his apostleship. Some of them deny the bodily resurrection which is why Paul discourses on it at length in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And it is this people that Paul gives thanks for. And consistently so. Notice he says, I always thank my God for you. Is there anyone sitting in here or sitting or stationed somewhere else in your life who you have trouble giving thanks for? Trouble giving thanks for might be putting it mildly, right? The matter is often more serious than that. There are people we have trouble merely tolerating. Everybody has difficult people in their lives. The Corinthians for Paul are a legion of very difficult people for whom he always thanks his God. So the first thing to see here is to let this text be for us a gentle prodding, maybe even a rebuke from the Spirit to begin with gratitude for the really hard people and stuff in our lives. Paul gives thanks to God for them. And notice this then, to fail to give thanks here for difficult people Or in Paul's case, these are to him obstinate people. To fail to give thanks for them is to fail to render a duty to God. It's not a duty that you're rendering to the person. It's to withhold from God what is rightly his due. Namely, gratitude for configuring your life with these difficult 
people in it. I give thanks to God for you. Now, you might ask, how can this be? I think it's because Paul refuses to see the people that he's in conflict with merely through the lens of the conflict. He refuses to shrink these brothers and sisters in Christ down to their personal hostility to him. And that is a grace of God, is it not, beloved? It is very hard to do that. Don't we naturally almost always do this? Because conflict, right, conflict enables our minds to play tricks on us. Right? It, it, we impute nasty motives, we mentally demonize, we shrink the other person down. Conflict distorts our ability to see the other human person whole. And Paul remembers here something about the people he's fighting against. And he remembers something crucial. Something that will prevent charity from being destroyed in your heart. He remembers they're God's people. And for all of their maddening immorality and error and arrogance, they are, he says in verse 2, the church of God at Corinth, sanctified in Christ, called to be holy. Right? These are the people who even a few years back had responded to the gospel from the mouth of Paul himself. And so he thanks God for them. And he continues in verse 4, I thank God for you because, here's the reason, Because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. So the the people in church or the people in your life who perhaps are difficult, who you may not naturally like, they've received the grace of God in Christ. And they're called with you, like you, to holiness, to be saints. And so we have to give thanks for them, not only once, but regularly. Because God has given them grace. And again, to not thank God for his grace to the other person is to withhold from God the praise that he's due. And so Paul continues. He says, In him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. Now this is where the Corinthians think they are the strongest. Right? This is their wheelhouse. Tongues, prophecy, gifts of speech, gifts of knowledge. They're abusing the gifts. They're puffed up with enormous pride, but Paul still acknowledges God's goodness in the gifts themselves. There's another lesson here. And it is that in conflict, we often throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? Everything the person believes or does must be wrong because, after all, they're dead wrong about X. Paul can distinguish the baby from the bathwater, the use of the gifts from the abuse of the gifts. And he's going to vigorously contest them on these gifts later. But for now, he says they show that God has confirmed the testimony of the gospel among you. He doesn't go right after the disorder. He finds the good things he can affirm at the front end of the letter. In fact, he goes on and he says, these gifts confirm the testimony of the gospel. Indeed, you don't lack anything, he says. You don't lag behind in any spiritual gift. Imagine saying this to this church. There's a remarkable charity and a spirit of gratitude 
to God on display in the opening of this letter. And it should awaken the same in us. Now, nevertheless, there are serious deep problems, and Paul will begin subtly and gently to address them right away. And that brings me to the second point, glory. Glory. The Corinthians have uh, what scholars have called an over-realized eschatology. Now I'm going to explain what that means. It's very simple. It basically means they have too much emphasis on the now and not enough emphasis on the not yet. Too much already, not enough, not yet. Too much Tuesday's pizza, right? Not enough Friday's pizza. They think, well, we've got all the Friday's pizza on Tuesday. We've got the whole thing. We've got the whole pie. And they think like this. The Corinthians think like this. We are already rich in Christ. We are already kings. We already reign. We already have the spirit. We already live in the life of the age to come. We have all this now. Not later. Now. Who needs a future bodily resurrection? We already speak the tongues of angels. We already live in a heavenly existence. And Paul will take this on with great force. Even derision. Later in chapter 4. Well, he will, he will say this. It's a masterpiece of rhetoric from Paul. He says this in chapter 4. Listen, notice the repetition of the word already. This is Paul being sarcastic, by the way. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. You're kings, but to the present hour, he says, we hunger, we're thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. We're homeless. We have become and still are, he says, like the scum of the world. Like the refuge of all things. Like that's what Paul thinks of the Corinthians reigning with Christ right now. That's his rhetorical response. And in chapter 13, he's going to tell them, now, for all that you have, you see through a glass darkly. Then face to face. Then the gifts which are only temporary will pass away. But here, right at the opening of the letter, he's going to be gentler than that. He's going to be gentler. He's going to make it clear, though, that despite all these gifts, they haven't yet arrived. You can see this in verse 7. He says, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. It's as if the gifts themselves can't even be exercised unless you're eagerly waiting for the second coming. The gifts which are the fruit of the first coming, you don't lack them as you are eagerly waiting. See, this is the part the Corinthians don't have. They've got the now part, right? They've got it. We've got the spirit. We've got the gifts. We're reigning. And Paul says, you're only reigning as you eagerly wait. These people, the Corinthians... They celebrate Advent. 
and they never see its connection to the second coming. Christmas, 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 never the coming glory for the Corinthians. Pretty much the way American Christians celebrate Advent. Christmas, decades, decades of Christmas, zero eagerly waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed from heaven. It's completely lost on us. And yet it's the deep logic of the New Testament. And Paul reminds them here. He says, these gifts that you have, this grace that Christ has lavished on you, that, those things are the power of the age to come. Right? The gifts of the Spirit are to make you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, Paul says, because he has a hidden quality in this age. Corinthian Christian existence has none of this. So Paul says Jesus needs to be revealed. He's been revealed, of course, in the manger, in his appearance. But there's a certain veiling of him in the ascension. And he speaks of this unveiling language. In 1 Peter 1, you'll see it. The New Testament has it. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 2 Thessalonians 1. This idea that Jesus is unveiled or revealed from heaven. And so the point is simple. These are not two things that are in tension with one another. It's precisely because we have embraced the gospel and received the Spirit that we eagerly wait for Jesus to be revealed. So in Paul's mind, the first advent requires. It requires. Indeed, it should produce naturally, right, instinctively, a kind of yearning, a kind of groaning, a kind of sighing for the second advent. Now, this, this panting or this sighing is simply the language of love. We who love Jesus want to see him unveiled, revealed from heaven, face to face. And we need to be reminded this is the end of the Christian life. If your beloved is in Europe and you want her to stay there for a few thousand more years, content with FaceTime and letters but not her actual appearance in your doorway, one might question the love involved there. But it strikes me that that appears to be the way Christians love Jesus. Love longs for union with the beloved. Personal, consummate union. And so that to receive Christ in the first advent, to receive the the incarnate Christ, the baby of Christmas, Without this groaning for the consummation, that's like being engaged and never wanting to get married. And it's an absurdity, unknown in the New Testament. It's a complete absurdity. When Paul speaks of eagerly waiting for Jesus here, he does it again in Galatians 5. He does it three times in Romans 8. He does it in 2 Corinthians 5, in 1 Thessalonians 1, in Titus 2, in Philippians 3. It's done in Hebrews 9. It's done in dozens of other places. It's the basic orientation of Christians. But the Corinthians, gifted, rich, reigning, full, have lost sight of it. We should not be like them. Paul is determined that we not follow their example. He continues in the text, if you see the text here, he continues, he says, he will keep you firm to the end. 
so that you will be blameless on the great day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be shocking to the Corinthians. They think they stand firm already. They think they have everything they need. But Paul reminds them, you have these gifts, but the destination's ahead. You have to be purified to stand in that great day, that great day of the Lord. So notice what's happened here in 1 Corinthians 1. It's easy to miss this. Paul introduces himself. He addresses the church at Corinth. He greets them. He gives thanks. And then three times in two verses, he mentions the end of all things. That's just how his mind works over and over and over and over. I greet you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be ready for the great day. He's confident, he says, that the God who has called you, has called you into fellowship with his son, he'll bring this consummation, this, the, the end of this fellowship to pass. Right? All the great gifts of the Christian faith, which we have now, are ordered to this consummate fellowship. Right? Faith gives us knowledge and light of our beloved. Hope yearns for our beloved. Charity reaches out to unite ourselves with the beloved. Faith, hope, and love, order to Jesus Christ, and thus order to his unveiling, or to his appearing. So, there's no despising here of the gospel of grace, right, or the gift of the Spirit. Remember, Paul has celebrated and given thanks for the grace they received, for the gift of the Spirit. There's simply this pointed reminder, though, that gratitude for the gospel leads to groaning for glory. Right? Gratitude for the first coming leads to yearning for the second. If you really like Tuesday's pizza, right, and Tuesday's pizza is Friday's pizza, you're going to want Friday's whole pizza to be delivered. And that is what the historic church has seen in reading this passage. Right? They've read this and said, ah, this is a Christmas text. It's an Advent text. In fact, this text is for the first Sunday in Advent in this particular year of readings. So I'm going to close with three applications. They, they'll be very obvious at this point. I'm going to call them charity, church, and consummation. First, charity. The the, the gifts of the gospel, the fruit of Christ's first appearing. They are lavish and they are poured out, but here's the difficulty, right? They come in jars of clay. They are given to cracked vessels. More than that, they're given to, to confused and rebellious and deeply flawed vessels like the church at Corinth, like me, like you. Here's what Paul says, give thanks for them. Give thanks for those who oppose you. In Paul's case, those who critique him. Those who are maybe unnecessarily critiquing him. Those who are unappreciative of his work. Give thanks. Give thanks because they, like you, belong to Christ and have received grace and they are called to be holy. You know, the people that you see like this who are difficult, God has pledged to keep them firm until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He will keep you, Corinthians, firm till that day. Second second point I want to draw your attention to is the church. 
I don't see how a church like this could not cause us to sort of redouble our commitment to the visible community of Christ, of the saints. I mean, if Paul, I mean, there's nobody in this room that would stay in the Corinthian church. Right? People would go and say, you wouldn't believe that. I visited this Corinthian church last Sunday. I'm not staying there. That's ridiculous. Right? I mean, Paul can demonstrate this kind of gratitude for the Corinthians. Then surely our squabbles are pretty petty by comparison. He never gives up because it's the church of God at Corinth. Right? Their calling and their gifts are for the sake of the body. In this case, it's a body lacerated with corruption. But I think the endless church hopping and shopping and consumer mentality of American Christians is put to shame here. Paul does not pawn these people off on another apostle, right? He doesn't write to, you know, Thomas and say, you know, I've I've, I've been dealing with these Corinthians for like eight or nine years now. This is an impossible. Can one of you other apostles take over? He just digs in for the long haul. Thanks God for them. That's grace. That's the generosity of God on display in Advent. And it should cause you to see the church not only with clarity, that's the easy part, right, warts and all, but with charity. There's a lot of people who see the church with clarity that don't see it with charity. And there's a lot of people who might show charity who might be naive. They may not see the church with clarity. We are to see it with clarity and with charity. And finally, the consummation. This focus on the end is to be a source of great consolation for us. Great confidence. Because the baby in Mary's womb has appeared, the future belongs to the Lord. The heavens and the earth belong to the Lord. All things belong to you, whether they be life or death or things present or things to come. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. This is, as we've said here in the past, a lethal baby to the cosmic darkness. Because Jesus is revealed, we eagerly wait for him, the one we love, to be revealed. And we know that the God who comes in this way, this twofold advent, is faithful, Paul says. He'll keep you firm to the end. So that along with the Corinthian church, you and I will stand blameless, guiltless in that great day. So give thanks, especially for the difficulties in life. Love the church with clarity and charity and rejoice with confident Advent hope. Amen. Amen.